You are now tuned in to the Believe Podcast Network. Do you believe? This is Superlative, a podcast about watches, the people behind them, and the worlds that inspire them. Spending time with the Blog to Watch community and the stories we discover. Let's get started. Hey everyone, Ariel Adams with the Superlative Podcast. My guest today is Mr. Paolo Morai. He is the CEO of the Timex Group Luxury Division. Paolo, welcome. Welcome and thanks for asking me to join this conference. You know, one of the things I'm so excited about uh, before we speak, and we actually haven't had like an in-depth meeting together before, is the fact that you are one of the true veterans of this space. You know, you've been in your position for, um, you know, I think it was like 17 or 18 years now. You know, you, you've seen a lot. And this is a space that has a lot of managers that come and go. Um, do you feel that you've seen the watch industry evolve since you've been in it for as long as you have? Well, I, I think that the, my reply is definitely yes. I've been, uh, as you mentioned, 16 years in this position. But prior to my position in Timers Group, I also worked for Swatch Group uh, back uh, 25 uh, years ago. So <laughs> I can say I'm, I'm quite a veteran of the, of the watch industry for sure. And uh, as you can imagine, since the, the uh, they say the, the late 80s, uh, early 90s, uh, things have dramatically changed. So uh, at that time, the, the, the complete evolution of Swatch Group, which I was part of, was very significant. And today, a lot of other trends are, are completely changing the watch industry. Uh, including the, the the smartwatch phenomenon. Do you find it kind of reassuring? I know I do, and I've had this conversation with many people, that today in 2021, even though we live in a world of lots of unpredictability, we seem to feel that luxury watches aren't going anywhere. What they look like, how they're sold, who buys them, all that might change. But the luxury watch as a product has remained stubbornly enduring. You know what I mean? Oh, de- definitely. Uh, I mean, things keep changing, but uh, in uh, in a changement period, you have to find different ways. So, uh, as you mentioned, distribution might be changing, consumer habit might be changing, new consumer coming to the market. So, you have to really careful read the market and uh, be prepared for for let's say once we will say for the years to come. Now, I say for the months to come because things are keep changing so fast that uh, whatever strategy you set up, uh, it, it will need to be adapted uh, six months later. So it really is to, to focus on the market, on the consumer and consumer, of course, and then find a way to reach the end consumer, which might not be the same uh, way that we used in the past, but there is a way to, to remain. Just to make a small comparison to make everybody understand Today, we are in the world of computer and everything is uh, typing on, on, on a computer, but writing instruments are still there. So, I mean, everybody still buys writing instruments because it, it is still a kind of status symbol if you are part of a certain world. So, watches, luxury watches will definitely remain. Yeah, and there was, there was I was having lunch today with someone who actually pulled out their Mont Blanc pen. They had a fountain pen from Mont Blanc, and they said they didn't use it very often. This was a, a gentleman from Spain. And so you're right. Uh, there are a lot of products like watches that, that remain. Um, but, you know, pens aren't universal around the world, but watches seem to be universal. Like if you get to a point where you're cultured enough and you have enough disposable income, doesn't matter where you are in the world, you find a way to watches, don't you? No, absolutely. And as you mentioned, not necessarily something that you use every day, 
but you want to have it because you know that one day you will use it. And then do not forget that, uh, that while women can have different accessories for themselves, we as men, we don't have so many. So especially on the men's side, the watch will definitely remain as a watch because it's a kind of... Uh, uh, one of the few things that we can really wear. And for women, it is becoming more and more an accessory. So not just a timekeeping function, but as an accessory, which has to fit with your way of dressing or with your mood of the day. So it is an evolution, <laughs> yeah. but something that remains. And these are simple things, but they create lots and lots of demand. I'm going to give a little bit of context and discuss Timex, but I would love for you to explain the Timex luxury division. Um, for everyone that, that doesn't already know, Timex is, is an American company. It's one of the few uh, American watch companies uh, that's that's still around. It's a, it's a big company. Um, there, there, there are some competitors out there, but it's, it's one of the bigger ones. But even though they're an American company, um, you know, watchmaking is something that, that really has to have some type of foot or arm in Switzerland, uh, no matter what you do. And Timex makes a lot of different types of products at different price ranges. And there is a, a team of people um, based in Switzerland as well as Italy who produce and design sometimes higher-end watches, um, a lot of watches for um, fashion brands and things like that, uh, really high-end labels that, that you know, it really matters what their products are. And that's, that's sort of what I understand the Timex Group luxury division is. But I'd love for you to introduce it, explain when it started and why, and generally what your, what your team does. Okay, good. Well, as you mentioned, we are part of uh, Timex Group, which uh, basically started 170 years ago in the United States, and the brand, Timex brand, is still there, uh, being the, definitely the market leader in the U.S. mass market and well distributed all over the world. Uh, back in 2004, there was an opportunity for Timex Group to expand uh, beyond the, the Timex brand and other, let's say, fashion license to enter in the more, let's say, uh, upscale luxury uh, world of watches, creating a company based in Switzerland to run operation for Swiss-made watches. And so in the end of 2004, beginning 2005, they made an acquisition of an existing company, which was at that time owned by Versace, and which was the company which used to manufacture and distribute the Versace uh, watches and jewels. Was that Veritime? Yeah, the company at the time was called Vertime, which was a mix of Versace and Timex. Okay. <laughs> so okay. that's why the Vertime is the name. And since 2005, uh, we started uh, running the operation, of course, uh, at the beginning just for Versace, but then expanded to other, say, luxury fashion brands, particularly Italian brands, uh, for some of reasons. First, because we are based in Lugano, so which is very close to the Italian border which make us uh, an easy access for this maison to, to meet, discuss, uh, propose, uh, evaluate, uh, design, etc. Second, because uh, we have our own design center based in Milano, which is, again, it's not only a question of accessibility, but also of understanding. So to interpret it, the brand DNA is for us very important because, as you know, the space on a watch is very limited. And uh, if you are not capable to well interpret the brand DNA, and the, let's say the, the distinctive traits, you can create a watch, but then without putting the name on the dial, will be very difficult for the end consumer to distinguish. So in our case, we are definitely very strong in, in creating these very distinctive pieces. I got, I got to sort of bring a little bit more context into this because I think it's so important to discuss why 
in the first place, these really important fashion houses would want to work with a third-party company to do all of this watchmaking stuff for them. Because as, as you said, I think it's important to unpack this. Your team works with, let's just say Versace, because it's one of the most important ones, and you design watches that fit with their brand, and then you also produce them. You don't just take their designs. You create a watch that is meant to fit within the Versace DNA universe, and then you, of course, make it. And those are two completely different things. Yeah, absolutely. Right. First of all, uh, when we talk about uh, inspiration, these always come from, from, from the Maison. So uh, Donatella and their team of designers are uh, always the inspiration for any watch. So they give us some inspiration. Of course, they are not watch designers. So we have to, let's say, to translate their inspiration into a concrete watch, a product that we can then uh, manufacture and, and, and produce. So this is our job to, let's say, to start from their interpretation of, of what is the trend in their view of a watch and then make it a concrete product. This so is the let's first go step. back to the question, why would they not want to do this themselves? There's a, there's a lot of very, very good reasons, but I don't think that your average person out there would understand why these companies are oftentimes in a better position. You're providing a service for something that these companies, for the most part, can't even do themselves. Talk a little bit about why it's even necessary to work with a specialist to make watches, given the fact that these are very powerful companies unto themselves. Yeah, uh, it is true that uh, that most of the brands we, we deal with are very powerful. And uh, uh, indeed, if you look into the market, there is a clear differentiation between important brands that uh, do the watches by themselves and brands that apply to, to a specialist uh, and external partner. Indeed, it's not only a question of the watches, because you can also compare to other product categories, such as sunglasses, for example, for which uh, I would say 90% of, of the brands, uh, they apply to external manufacturer because there is a specific competence, like in watches, for example. Because right. I repeat, you can have inspiration, but then design a product that can be manufactured is completely different because there is technical knowledge that does not exist in a fashion house. Second, there is a question of distribution. It depends whether you want to have, let's say, an exclusive distribution in your own boutiques, or you want to have an, an extensive distribution, let's say, even in the, uh, let's say, the watch distributor. So in, in the watch retailers and not necessarily only in your monobrand boutique, which is also a, a point of differentiation because if you just want to sell in your own boutique, well, you can do much more internally. But if you want to have, let's say, a wider distribution, then definitely you need a, an expert partner to do that. And uh, well, who are the companies that only want to sell inside their stores? Uh, well, for example, I mean, uh, Chanel and Dior and Fendi are example not of exclusive distribution in their boutique, but primary distribution in their own boutiques. Right. And the, the trend is changing. Even if you look at Gucci, which used to be a very wide distributed product, now it's becoming more and more concentrated on their own boutiques. So it also depends, for example, on the number of the boutiques you can count on and how, how deep you want to, to penetrate the watch market in your own boutiques, how much this is just a status symbol for your own customers or how much you want to, to address to aspirational customers who want to, to, to exploit the brand from different angles. And it's also a way, I would say, to expand the, the, the knowledge of a brand because I will say that, that we have a complete different reach of, of end consumer compared to a monobrand boutique. 
One of the things I've noticed, and I love your comment on it, is this fact. You'll take a brand, which is a luxury fashion brand, and, and the pricing you know, could be high. But then when you, when you say, what's the pricing of the watches that go with your brand, you never could guess what the pricing is. The prices of the watches could be you know, entry level to super, super high end. How do these brands make a decision when it comes to where they want to price their watches at? Because it seems to be sort of not random, but each of them seems to choose a different strategy. And I've always been curious as to how they make those decisions. Well, uh, indeed, first of all, in, in my opinion, it also depends on the moment when when they decided to start the watch operation and what is the background. Uh, some of the company, for example, used to run the watch business under license and then they decide to internalize, so which has made a, a difference. Second, uh, when, when uh, we created this uh, luxury division in Switzerland back in 2005, the market was completely different from what, what it, it has been in the past so five, different. six like years. Completely different. <laughs> completely different. And I can tell you, in 2008, 2009, I was selling uh, watches uh, with tourbillon movement for 150,000 euros under, yeah. under these fashion brands. Today, even to reach the, the 5,000 or 6,000 euro retail price, it, it's relatively difficult for the same brand. So... It's not only a question of how prestigious is the brand, but is how the end consumer looks at this type of product. So people have been more and more conscious about spending money. So they appreciate that to, to buy fashion, fashion brands for a certain price point. And still, there's huge differentiation because there are fashion brands that are absolutely luxury, but then they only have uh, China-made products. And uh, most likely they did it uh, just because they were uh, or as you can imagine, selling more and then getting more revenues, despite the positioning. You know that in the fashion business, a lot of brands, they, they used to run different labels. So they have the main labels, second line, third line, fourth line, etc., etc. So right. a lot of brands have decided to enter the, the watch business under different level and positioning. What is for sure that when you start from the lower level, it will be very tough to, let's say, to to elevate your, your position. Uh, and uh, so I would say that uh, definitely uh, Versace, since the very beginning, they decided to stay on the Swiss-made portion of the business. And we have maintained that position throughout all the years, despite, the, the uh, as I repeat, very high important variances in terms of acceptance by the end consumers for, for fashion watches. I've seen some of the brands do a fantastic job of incorporating their watches into their branding, into their runway shows, you know, onto their main website and marketing, and others that seem to want someone else to talk about their watches and things like that. Why is there such a difference there, and how important is it that the entire brand embrace the fact that they also make watches versus just treating it like another category? Uh, well, a lot, a lot depends uh, on, on the designers. So the more that the, they say the designer of a maison likes the product, the more easy we see the product on the fashion show, on the web, uh, on the e-commerce, et cetera, et cetera. The less uh, he, he, there is an understanding before, be, between the maison designer and the product, the more the product will be treated in a separate way. So I have to say that, for example, uh, with Donatella Versace, we have gone through, again, different moments. And recently, I would say in the past two or three years, we have seen an increasing interest of Donatella for the for the categories. 
and uh, passion for that. Uh, she's really wearing the watches with design, etc. So uh, it's it's always a question to 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 find the right balance. Uh, sometimes you do fantastic watches, but then the designer might not say, "Oh, okay, I understand it's uh, a product for our brand, but not for me." And, and you know, <laughs> if a designer doesn't feel that something is perfect, he will not put in in the fashion show. Fashion show is just. Uh, 15 minutes uh, show for the press, for the end consumer, and not necessarily is uh, uh, the place where you see product that then will be sold. Yeah, no, it's, it's interesting. And it sounds like there's a lot of, I'll just say personality, maybe egos, um, you know, uh, sometimes there must moodiness. Be egos, eh? There must be egos. Eh? Absolutely. There must be egos. Explain yeah, that. Absolutely. Sounds like it's a rule. It's a rule. It's a rule in, in our world. And, and, you know, the ego is given a bad rap. So de- defend the egos. Tell everyone why, even though there's some bad sides, having an ego in the fashion space is crucial. I'm interested in this. No, it's crucial because uh, you need to have a strong ego to have a strong personality to succeed. Otherwise, I mean, uh, at the end, uh, you become one, one off and you, you need to be very distinctive in this world. And what do you think your team is particularly good at? I've seen a lot of your watches, and I have to say, some of them are, are very impressive given that a third-party team is designing for the brand, uh, the, 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 the Ferragamo watches over the years. Just some incredible stuff. Uh, Versace, um, you know, the creativity uh, going back to sort of the textures and the fabrics that the brand is known for. I thought you've done a sort of very, very good job. But in your words, what do you think that your team does particularly good, especially given that there, there are competitors out there that are also trying to get the license relationships? Well, uh, f- first of all, yes, there are competitors. Uh, but uh, I would say to to be comparable with our company, there are not so many competitors. Okay, yeah, only a handful. It's true. Uh, there are maybe three, three, maybe three, maybe three, and maybe only two. And the third one, it doesn't look to be very much interested to to enter the fashion world. They use have one license, they abandon the license. So maybe you have two competitors. Both of these two competitors are U.S. companies, as we are. But we have the peculiarity to have our luxury division set up in Switzerland, which may give us a, a very strong access to the Italian fashion brands. And you might, you might guess that we are stronger with Italian brands rather than with U.S. brands, for example. Uh, because when you are close, you have the same mentality, you have a better understanding, you have easy access. You can imagine, uh, I know brands, Italian brands that had license with the U.S. companies. And to do a meeting, they have to calculate six hour difference. They have to, to speak English language only. You can imagine <laughs> how much easier it is for us that we are in the same time zone. We speak the same language. And Let, it's not okay, only let's to let's talk be with. honest here. You would not be able to work with Italian companies if you weren't Italian. I mean, this is a this is a necessary thing. This is uh, by design to have the relationship with this number of massive Italian fashion houses. The Timex team must be basically primarily local. Uh, it is not a necessity, but certainly it is a strong, a strong addition. I, and, I, and I see necessity in a good way because you're doing the right thing. You're doing what should be done. You know, in the U.S. so often, there's this, I guess, this common theme where they say this person who studied, you know, luxury in France 
comes to the U.S. and tells them how to do luxury in the USA as though they know better. And I think that you avoid this problem because you're you're like-minded. You're you're able to get more done because you probably agree more often. This is this is a positive thing. And strategically, I think it's great for Timex because you know the world often thinks of you know French luxury as being the sort of epicenter, but there's just as many luxury brands from Italy. And so this strategy of working on the Italian ones. I think makes so, so much sense, um, especially since the Italian and, of course, now Spanish uh, fashion houses probably more prolific than the French ones, if, if maybe you'll disagree or agree. I don't know. No, no but for, for sure, uh, let, let's say it is a, a, a strong addition that we offer to, to, these, uh, to these brands, uh, even though, I repeat, that there are Italian fashion brands that are working with U.S. companies or, or, or whatever. Regarding to the French brands, a lot of them, they, they, they stayed on a different position, internalizing uh, the production, uh, uh, being part of, of larger group where you can afford even creating internal team for different brands. So when you see about talking Versace or Ferragamo or Missoni, I mean, uh, these are still, I would say, independent brands, even though Versace made part of an acquisition uh, in the past couple of years. So independent brands could never really afford to set up their own watch operation. If you talk about French brand, there are two main groups. We get a lot of, of, of brand, not necessarily French brand, but now becoming French for, for the ownership. And then, of right. course, when, when you get uh, so many brands, it is easier to set up also an internal, let's say, uh, company or group of company also for the watch industry or uh, sunglasses as uh, an example of, of this French group. Well, what's amazing is that even though you are third-party manufacturing, your products still are typically less expensive than the companies that internalize it. So I don't, the consumer doesn't necessarily win with all that internalization, do they? Uh, well, uh, yes and no. For sure, uh, the fashion world has been... Uh, uh, I would say built over over the years with incredible profit margins. So uh, the profitability of, of the houses of the fashion houses is very high. Nothing to compare with the watches. But at the same time, uh, I had many years experience in the consumer electronics. And if I look backwards in the watch industry, we have a very high margin compared to to luxury uh, consumer goods. So uh, again. There is a lot of space for future evolution of things, and uh, it's really difficult to, to predict which is the correct way. You have to, as I say at the very beginning, be very careful, constantly look at the consumer habits, the consumer changes, and be ready for the next uh, few months or years. How do you study what the consumer is doing? I think what you said about watching consumer habits is, of course, fantastic advice and sage wisdom. But how do you yourself keep up to date? Do you look at reports? Do you yourself, you know, spend time as a consumer? What do you do to study what, what's going on with the market? Well, first of all, uh, likely we have, uh, let, let's say, a very wide distribution. So we serve uh, uh, more than, uh, than, uh, than 50 countries all around the world. And the, the, the first, uh, let's say, uh, senior that we receive is the sale through of our product in different countries. So as soon as we introduce a new product, uh, we have a very close control of the sale through in all the various countries. 
So we have an immediate feedback. Second, because we work with this uh, important maison, they have a strong owned retail network, which is again a very strong signal that we have got a lot of feedback on the consumer perception and consumer reaction. All kinds of data available to you from the brands. We, we have ton, tons of tons of data available. And last but not least, you know that uh, today, the, the, let's say the e-commerce is becoming uh, more and more relevant. Not that it will replace the traditional distribution, but it's becoming very significant. And again, from the, let's say, the e-commerce, you get tons of information. And what is, uh, uh, let's say, very important to notice, in the e-commerce channel, uh, very frequently, you get completely different uh, information, uh, or if you want to read it differently, completely different sales compared to the traditional distribution. For one important for one important reason that you don't you do not have filters, you go straight to the end consumer. While in the traditional distribution you have a filter which is your distribution. So once you enter in a, in a shop, you always have a filter. In a, in a watch shop, they they normally run I don't know twenty brands, so you don't know what the the sales staff will really tell to the end consumer. It's a huge filter. In the e-commerce, you don't have filter. You tell your story. That's it. That's interesting. And, you know, what comes to mind is this, what you said before, how the brands have these different levels of products. And it may be the case that there's one type of product that is meant for direct-to-consumer distribution. There's another type of product that is meant to go in third-party retail. There's another type of product that's meant to go in the brand's own stores. Is that a possible future? No, this is not the future. This is the present. Already already today, we have, let's say, uh, a, a channel channel product strategy. So each channel has a different type of product and not necessarily the same product is working well in all channels. So there is a strong segmentation of product by channels and, and as well as by countries because do not forget, for example, the size of the watches is very much different in Europe compared to Middle East, Americas, or Asia. So there is, of course, a strong uh, product channel country segmentation. Uh, uh, but what, what is really relevant is not only the product channel segmentation, but it's really the fact that uh, you speak directly to the end consumer. We have seen products that have not been very successful in the traditional distribution booming through the e-commerce channels. There would be no reason for that, except the fact that the e-commerce has uh, a different approach. They try, they test, if it's successful, they expand. Give me me some concrete examples. I think this is absolutely fascinating. What are some things that, you know, worked in direct-to-consumer that just didn't work in in retail? I'm I'm, I'm fascinated. A very simple example. I can mention one country, Germany, which has always been very tough for us, very tough. We opened up a a couple of uh, e-commerce accounts in the past two years, 2020 and 21. We are definitely booming in Germany. And there is no reason for that except the fact that we could access directly to the end consumer. So without the filter of the retailers, that maybe they didn't like the product, they didn't like the brand name or whatever. But then we see that the end consumer likes it. So Now, there's always been this interesting difference between the luxury watch world and the fashion watch world. And there are luxury fashion watches, but not all fashion watches are luxury. And one of the unfortunate side effects has been that 
a lot of watch collectors, not including me, have maybe not taken some of the fashion watch brands as seriously as they should for silly prejudices. Some of them, it's, it's as simple as, oh, that's a brand that makes products for women and I'm a man, so I want a man's brand. Again, sometimes silly stuff, but do you ever sort of feel that that luxury fashion watches are sometimes treated unfairly because watch collectors might be kind of snobby, just saying it like that? Oh, uh, well, first of all, Collectors, they, they collect always uh, in two different ways. The first, the, the easier way, it's what they like. So I cannot complain if those type of people, they're not collecting uh, fashion, fashion brands. The second way is to collect products that they know will get value over the, over the years. So they, they collect, but within brackets in terms of uh, investment. They know they buy today, they can resell tomorrow for a much higher price. I don't believe well, that's that, in, that's that, in, that's investing, like you said. That's not collecting. You know, you do it for a different reason. I don't. I don't, yeah. I don't believe that's a, what a what a, a lover of brands and products does. Yeah, but uh, but if you see a lot a lot of let's say the most expensive watches are collected by people who do it for investments. Unfortunately, in my opinion, they yeah. made those watches the most expensive. I, I believe that the collectors. I'm sorry to get off on a tangent here, but I feel passionately about this. These people who are speculators, all they're doing is driving up products for for the same type of people who would have spent less money on them. Nobody wins except the dealers, and the only people that lose are collectors like you and I'm in uh, and, and me. I'm guessing you're no, a collector, so you know what I, I mean. I, 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 that's absolutely my point. When you and when you recently see quotation for certain watches, I mean it doesn't make any sense. Products that are, are sold at ten times the ten times the retail price. I mean. Yeah, I know some people get excited about it, but it's actually quite quite bad, you know, for the market. And it's um, I, absolutely. I'm, I'm I'm glad that people uh, agree with me on this because sometimes I think that you know some of these auction houses are pretty guilty, but no one is calling them out. And the funny thing that people don't necessarily understand is that this is a conservative, polite industry. When there's something bad going on or something something controversial, there's no immediate mechanism for the industry to deal with it, right? Well, no immediate, but but uh, some of the brands are dealing with it. I mean, uh, I know that that today, uh, if you buy a watch just to be resold, certain type of watches, and then it is find out, you will no longer be allowed, you as a person, but also the retailers, to trade those, those brands. So, no, there, there is... A tentative. It's not strong, but there is a tentative. And by the way, we see the same all over the world. I mean, look at the car industry. There are people which buy the Ferrari because they like it and they collect. There are people who buy Ferrari just because they know they can resell for higher prices uh, five years later. So, And everyone that likes the Ferrari hates the, the man or the woman that buys it because it goes up in value. They hate that. Yeah, yeah, I know. Same as we hate those people who, who gamble with their watches, but... <laughs> There's that too. I want to change the topic again because I'm I'm actually quite curious what your experience has been like during the pandemic, especially the late pandemic. There's been supply chain issues, and that's affected so many different companies. How has your team been affected potentially by the inability uh, to get parts, to make parts, and to do manufacturing as you need? Uh, well, I have to say that uh, that uh, during the pandemic, uh, we have observed a lot of other watch companies uh, being seriously affected on the supply chain. And I have to mention that even for the Timers Group, uh, we we have faced, uh, of course, some issues. I mean, we are not different from others. 
as the luxury division, and uh, sometimes I'm, I'm honest to say, I don't even know why we have not at all been affected. Uh, just consider that that uh, that uh, during 2020, uh, we of course we had a small decline, but in the range of few points, single digits, where most of the company were dropping uh, double digit. <laughs> Not bad. That's congratulations. And, and and this year, I mean, our growth is forty uh, percent above two thousand nineteen in terms of volumes, which means that in terms of supply chain, uh, we have been capable. I mean, to to correctly plan, forecast, uh, or use of, of of components in a correct way that has not has not at all affected us. I mean, and believe me, we we have let's say. Uh, uh, registering incredible growth this year and expected to continue next year. And uh, my, my supply chain manager has not raised one single concern about, oh, Paolo, you know, this will have a problem. Some delays, yes, I have to tell you. I mean, normally we are very good in forecasting, planning, manufacturing. So once we we receive an order, we know since the order, which will be the delivery date and this year, of course, but at the end, it was a few weeks delays, which, I mean, I think was an amazing result. Have you visited the gift store for watch lovers? It's called the Blog to Watch store, and we carry art, apparel, and accessories for today's timepiece enthusiasts. Buy your wristwatches elsewhere and celebrate the watch collecting hobby with high quality original products at the Blog to Watch store. Right now, the Blog to Watch store features a line of t-shirts inspired by iconic timepieces and designed by the collecting experts at the Blog to Watch. Made from 100% premium cotton, our soft fitted t-shirts are stylish, fun, and models like our iconic diver dial even have a glow in the dark face. The Blog to Watch store carries bespoke yet affordable products, which the Blog to Watch editorial team wanted for themselves as the first customers. Visit the website to see what is available right now, and we ship internationally with new products coming all the time. Check it out by logging on to store.ablogtowatch.com. That's store.ablogtowatch.com. One of the things I was really curious about were the designs that you may be, you know, the most proud of. I mean, you've made a lot of watches over the years for a lot of really incredible brands uh, that a lot of people have, have enjoyed. But what are some of the ones that you're really proud of that you think not only made a lot of sense for the fashion house, but in, in, in the scheme of watches, maybe uh, considered really uh, masterpiece designs? Well, uh, this is a question that, that brings me to my memory another important aspect. Uh, as you know, in the, let's say, the traditional watch houses, uh, normally they, they, they have been able o- over the years to create some masterpiece that lasts for, and I don't want to say hundreds of years, but 20, 40, 50, 100 years or whatever. Uh, if you take uh, any brands, I mean, uh, Patek or Rolls or whatever, they have their one or two or three masterpieces which drive their sales and then they are collateral product, of course. But when you look at those brands, uh, everybody would be hunting for, for those two or three or four pieces. In, in the, let's say, luxury fashion business, uh, we have been trying to, to do something different. So to create uh, not every season, because they are not just uh, 
seasonal product, but every two or three years uh, to renew the collection, to introduce new product, uh, to, to be up to trend of the fashion of the fashion brands, which means that that not specifically our target, our aim was to create uh, some specific uh, uh, masterpiece. Nevertheless, uh, both in, in in Versace and in Ferragamo, we have uh, we have they say been very successful with certain products that uh, have become a kind of masterpiece that that we cannot skip out of the collection. For example, if you take Ferragamo, the Gancino. Uh, watch for lady yeah. is a is a piece that we cannot skip. I mean, it represents a huge portion of our sales. Is the best seller all over the world. Is requested by all our partners, uh, whether it is a traditional retailers or e-commerce, and it's not something that we could avoid uh, to have or to renew or to introduce uh, to extend in different uh, variations. And and the same has been, for example, for Versace. Uh, we had several uh, pieces that have been very, very successful over the years, and that, that uh, somehow, even though uh, maybe the name has been changed, but this is more a question of, they say, presentation to the end consumer. But the, the basic design of the watch has remained the same for 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 many years. So, uh, for sure, uh, if I have to mention one product, I would. Uh, Call out the DV1 for Versace, yeah. which was the first watch uh, I've been introducing into the market back in 2005 when I joined the company. So when we established this company and they joined the company, uh, and we only had Versace as a brand, we introduced the DV1, which was the ceramica watch, and was a huge success, huge success. And 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 the price point were relatively high because the starting price point was four thousand. And four thousand euro retail going up to ten, fifteen thousand. So uh, you cannot uh, avoid to have the memory of this uh, good timing. What what's it what what is it like to deal with the Versace family? Of course, today Donatella. It's um, you know this is such a known personality. I I've never met her. She seems like quite an interesting individual. Um, what's it like dealing with her, especially now that she seems to be a lot more interested in watches? Well, uh, you know, first of all, I mean, the, the, the relationship with her is more uh, dealt by, by the designer or our chief designer because they speak the same language. Ne- nevertheless, we try to have uh, uh, regular meetings uh, throughout the year just to, to not only to establish the relationship, which is well established in so many years, but really to be up to date because I repeat, uh, th- th- this person are really, I mean, uh, evolving constantly and basically the moment you finish a collection which is perfect ready to be launched into the market when they look at the collection oh this is ugly this is old because they already are mindset into the new collection (laughs) they move too fast they they are definitely for the watch industry they move too fast Uh, so it's uh, it's very interesting to try to uh, to make them understand that there is a compromise between the speed of fashion and the relatively uh, uh, less uh, fast uh, uh, speed of watch industry. Are they ever interested in complications or, or other functions that watches can have? I think one of the things that defines fashion watches for me is they focus very much on the shape of the watch, but it's very little bit about what the watch does. Is, is, is there ever alternatives to that or, or exceptions? Uh, I repeat, back in 2005, we were doing a lot of these complications. 
moon phase tour up to tour beyond. I mean, we were doing tour beyond for 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 our both both our brand, both for Ferragamo and for Versace. The world has dramatically changed after 2009. It was likely coming back in 1617, but then the pandemic has changed the world again. Yes. So I think that if we have five, six years of relatively stable, I would say stable market, not even growth, but stable market, there might be opportunities because the, the, the end consumer at the end, when when they see a certain stability, they move little by little, they move for more upgraded product, which might mean for, for ladies, for example, more diamond versions, and for men, of course, a more complicated movement. But we need a period of stability. Where When, when we go to this turbulent moment, I mean, the end consumer, when he looks at our product, they want to stay on more, let's say, safe side in terms of price point. That's very, very interesting, and that's also very insightful that a consumer has to have enough time to buy one product and then learn about watches and then buy the next one, the next one, and work their way up to the more expensive, complicated ones. If they're not making disposable income for long enough, they can never have that journey. Or if the market is full of uh, insecurity, they might stop buying watches and, and do something else with their money. Yeah, that, that's exactly the point. Uh, to, let's say, to educate people that uh, under let's say, a luxury brand, you can have watches that are valued as a true watch because, uh, I mean, uh, you know, even though we cannot publish that too much, but uh, the engine of the watches is likely to come out from few factories all over the world. Yeah. <laughs> so, and it's the same as the car industry. You buy a very expensive sporty car, and then you find out that maybe Toyota is supplying because the engine. it's just too specialized. That's the thing. You, yeah. The consumer doesn't actually want a, a watch movement made from a bunch of like nerds in the garage. It said, we can do it like the big guys. You want like testing, the right machines, the know-how, the, the focus on long-term reliability, not just will it work for a month, but will it work for years, you know? Like you want that as a consumer, but for some reason, collectors are obsessed with they made 10 of these movements ever. Like it's not going to work, guaranteed. No, no, I know because uh, in, uh, in Timers Group, uh, we have run for a certain period a brand called Vincent Berard, right. where we were manufacturing our own movements. That was a very expensive one, right? Oh, uh, well, there were a collection of uh, what's called the Four Seasons, was just four pocket watches, a pocket, and uh, it was almost uh, uh, 700 grams of gold, so not really a pocket watch, but wow. it was originated as the collection of four pocket watches, one for, one for each season. And that was that was okay, but then when coming to, to normal uh, normal watches, normal uh, for the price point that, as you mentioned, if you do not have volumes, uh, it's difficult to guarantee the quality. I mean... What what's your favorite price point to work around? You work within a few different price points, but what do you feel is the sweet spot between um, a price that the market can can handle and and enough mar- and enough budget to to do something cool? Uh, thousand to three thousand euro retail price. One to three thousand euros. Yeah, that that's the the core of our business, and where we we are, I would say, very competitive. Not in terms of price, but very competitive in terms of. Uh, what we offer for the price we ask. 
And what should a consumer expect at that price point? I'd love to hear from you a couple of things that anybody buying a watch between the one to 3,000 euro price point, you should demand that this, this feature or this quality or something is in the watch. What, what, what would you say? No, first of all, the quality. Definitely the quality. And uh, I will say that, that uh, again, uh, it's also a question of distribution. Traditional distribution is still targeting to the quality of the product. Quality means how it is finished, that it looks really well finished, but then quality in the sense that they don't get returns from the end consumer. So I can tell you that, that uh, we have uh, a return rate which is far below 1%. So, which That's is impressive. To, That's very impressive. That, which is far below the standard of the industry. Uh, look, there have been brands that at points in their history have had return rates of like 70 or 80 percent. Yeah, but uh, it depends <laughs> what it depends what 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 you, what you aim to. I mean, the more you do complicated things and I would say not standardized things, the more you get into troubles. The, the sad thing is that the, the consumers never thank you for getting it right. Thank you, Timex Group, for making me a watch that hasn't fallen apart after 15 years. Thank you for making sure that the polish still looks good after five or 10 years. You never get to thank you for that, right? Like all the things you do well seem to be. Because complaints. <laughs> you, <laughs> you, know know I mean? you get these complaints for sure. Yeah. And, and, and it's interesting because the consumer in the luxury space, um, rarely says thank you, but feels very entitled to complain when there's even the smallest issue ever. Um, do you think that because someone is spending a lot of money in a product, they by default have a right to say any opinion they have, or do you think that they still need to be reasonable about it? Well, I think that uh, because one, once you, you, you pay for something, uh, it's, uh, I mean, uh, uh, it's included in the price you pay the appreciation. <laughs> <laughs> and, and if something goes wrong, you you, are, you need to complain. It's correct to complain. I mean, any complaint I, I would get, uh, it's uh, it's an help to be better. I mean, and uh, over 15 years, 16 years in the group, we have been facing troubles, of course, and we fixed the troubles. And uh, likely most of the troubles were, were, were detected by our quality control, so not even by the end consumer. But... If a trouble goes to the end consumer, you have to solve it. And uh, if people that don't complain and they, they stop buying you, it's much worse. Yeah, that's, that's I mean, definitely the, the active sales on the market is the best feedback for sure. Um, next question. Right now, it seems that all the watches you make are for licensed partners, and that's fantastic. I mean, I'm just going to read some of the names here. Versace versus, which is part of Versace, Salvatore Ferragamo. Uh, CT Scuderia, which is cool stuff, Missoni, of course, Timex, Nautica, Guess, GC, Ted Baker, Furla. Um, but n these are all licensed partners. Why does the Timex Group Luxury Divi Division not make any in-house luxury watches uh, anymore? Is that is that a taboo subject or is that something that makes sense in the market potentially? Well, uh, it, it, well it, it makes sense. It's my personal dreams, uh, but there are some, uh, some constraints. First of all, uh, we are set up uh, to, to sell uh, Swiss-made uh, fashion luxury watches, which means that we know exactly how to do that, how to communicate that. We have set up a distribution which is perfect for that, so uh, retailers 
that knows exactly how to do that. Which means when I introduce a new fashion brand and my partners look at the product collection, I have an immediate feedback. They they know from day one if it will work or not. And we also know from day one if it And it's because the Ferragamo name is most important. The product comes yeah. second, Ferragamo name comes first. No, I would no 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 no. Absolutely not. It's a mix of things. Okay. So it's the brand name, it's the design, it's the price range, etc. When you go to a product where you put your own brand name, which is totally unknown, you enter a completely different world. You should look for a completely different distribution, not the retailers who sell fashion watches, but retailers who sell traditional watches, which is not, uh, let's say, basically the, the, the distribution that we own. So we have, should build it up, which means that maybe we have to set up a different uh, uh, sales structures, set up a different distribution uh, point of sales and channels, and, and then last but not least, uh, to, have, to have the correct product. Uh, it's it's brand building is what you're talking about. And, and traditionally, yeah, it, corporations are not amazing at brand building. They buy mature brands and then they monetize them. Yeah, and that's that's one point. The other point is opportunity into the market. I think that today, with all the world looking at sustainability, there is a, a, a good moment for study or introducing a brand where you can really develop a brand on full sustainability. For Tell example. me about that. What, what, how would it be sustainable? I mean, this sounds a little bit like, you know, what you want to do with your dreams. So talk about it. No, no, I mean, uh, you need to have uh, something which is distinctive. And I do not believe that for your own brand, uh, just design is enough distinctive. Or, uh, I mean, we are not in the, in the movement uh, world, so not even creating a, a specific moment. So, what you need, you need to have a distinctive idea. I think that uh, today there's a lot of attention to sustainability, to changing the world, to be more conscious, et cetera, et cetera. So, I mean, uh, for example, uh, if I would launch my own brand, I would not study at all the quartz movement. I only start automatic movement. Okay, uh, okay. Because you don't have the battery. You can use all, all recycled materials. It's definitely, it's definitely long-lasting. It's not meant to, it's not disposable. It fits within uh, ecological friendliness. Exactly, exactly. And then you build the story. I mean, because today what is important is storytelling. What is the story behind? I mean, big brands, they have the story. They have 10, 20, 50, 100 year history. You learn something new, you need to build a story. And you, you need to be credible on that story. Distinctive and credible. So you think the sustainability message is, is going to be so relevant to consumers for so long that it makes sense to potentially build a luxury watch brand around it? Uh, it, it can be, it can be, and uh, we, we have seen that whenever we have presented, uh, let's say, in the collection of our brands, a specific uh, a product based on sustainability, well, I mean, it's true that most of the time we're maybe limited edition, but was uh, sold out in, in minutes. Let me ask you a question when it comes to sustainability, because these days we have marketing sustainability, which is applying the term, you know, for sales purposes. And then there's actually wanted to make sure there's some type of, you know, net positive. And I think a great example is a lot of these recycled products um, are actually, you know, 
less efficient than making brand new plastic, for example, because it actually today uses more energy to recycle it first and you know make it to a material again. And they say, well, if you do it enough, maybe we'll innovate. Um, what is your personal feeling on this sort of, you know, doing it because it actually has a positive impact and other companies from learn for it versus, well, from a marketing perspective, you can get away with saying basically whatever you want. It doesn't actually matter if it's helping at all. It's just promoting the idea of it is good enough. You know, how important do you think these sort of things are? No, I, I think that you need to find a way to do things that the end consumer, which is not uh, in this in this respect, uh, uh, ignorant. So there is a not a lot of knowledge by the end consumer. So you need to have a real story. I mean, um, if you if you look at the car industry today, everybody is moving to electric cars. Right, uh, right. But what, what is the cost of producing the battery? The, the, let's say the ecological cost <laughs> of producing, and then tomorrow of of, uh, of changing the batteries in the car or uh, destroying the batteries of a car. I mean, yeah, it's not pretty. It's not pretty. It's not pretty, and I don't think that that uh, the advantage you have today, because today. Most of the people who buy electric car, uh, from a consumer perspective, is just to, between brackets, to save money more than to be eco-friendly. Oh, I bought I bought this, uh, uh, let's say, electric or uh, dual-engine car just because I go to the office and I only spend uh, uh, one one uh, one euro or fifty kilometers instead of five or ten as before, etc., etc. So it's not really to be eco-friendly. I think that if we start a project in the watch business, it should be a real, a real project and not just a show-off. And in the watch space, it's true. I mean, in Switzerland especially, you have all these watch facilities that are, I mean, they don't really have emissions. They're, you know, carbon neutral, as you would say. There's a lot, They don't take up too much space. There's a lot of greenery. They're clean. I mean, these are... You know, before it was trendy to be eco-friendly, basically uh, an eco-friendly kind of company, right? Yeah, I mean, uh, we we have uh, uh, started as a timing group. We started several years ago to try to become more and more eco-friendly. I mean, in, in the U.S., in our headquarters in the U.S., most of the electricity is produced by by solar panels. For example, we have a huge solar solar plant in our in our facility. I mean, we are uh, trying to become plastic-free. So, for example, no more plastic bottles uh, in the offices. Uh, mm. We serve uh, the water in the machine and people have to bring their, their own glasses to take the water instead of using plastic. So there are a lot of things that we are doing internally. And uh, we are studying since many years how really to produce a watch which is completely eco-friendly. So what are and the most sustainable or low impact watch case materials and things like that. I mean, we have metals and carbons and plastics and ceramics and all that. Which good material actually is not difficult when it comes to the manufacturer or whatever and is, is pretty environmentally friendly? Well, I, I think it's still uh, recycled steel. Okay. It's still, uh, it's still the, the solution. I mean, recycled plastic, there's a lot of rumors around, but as you say, it's not yet clear what is the the cost behind it. Okay, it's recycled plastic, but then the cost to recycle it is still uh, uh, not the cost in terms of what you pay, but 
Is, is it because we're so awesome. far advanced with recycling steel or steel just sort of melts at the right temperature and it's just easy to blend up again into an alloy? What is it about steel? No, it's that, that, that is exactly what you were mentioning. I mean, you melt it again, so. Okay, so it's just, it's just, it's just a great, and, and look, steel is probably the hero of the watch industry. I would say gold, gold would be the same, but then we have, we might have to discuss about gold mining, uh, where, it's, uh, <laughs> where, where we find gold, if it is, uh, I, mean, you know, I mean, you enter some more complication, but gold would be the, the perfect example. You can melt it down and recycle it very easily. I mean, we recycle a lot of gold in, uh, in the world normally. No, we do. And and again, I just want to go back to steel because a lot of your background is, you know, basically what you do is handle a lot of manufacturing it is kind of the wonder material for, for watch cases, isn't it? I mean, it's all the properties that it has. It can be machined very well. It's very, very strong. It's inexpensive. Um, you know, people always trying to find the next big thing, but steel has really been it, hasn't it? Well, we, we have made several, uh, let's say, tests of different materials, but then at the end, uh, uh, you always come back to, to the stainless steel. Even the ceramic has been a, a, a great moment, and I used to work for Rado when I was in Swatch Group 30 years ago. So I know ceramic since many, many years as watch application, uh, which is from certain angle a perfect materials. It's but a close second. A, it's a close second. Yeah, it, it, it will be becoming a close second if there is more respect for the material. I mean, when it was very successful in the year 2005, 6, and 7, there were too many people which were pretending to say, oh, this is a ceramic, which was, uh, I mean, very bad ceramic quality made in very bad factories. I mean, while the real ceramic was only the time manufacturing You're Japan, right. There was some uh, terrible expensive. ceramic early on that was like yeah. cheap stuff. But, I mean, look, it seems to be that ceramic has not only endured, but it doesn't cost a huge amount to get really good, you know, baked zirconium dioxide. Uh, again, it's a question of numbers. If you have uh, decent volumes, uh, it doesn't cost that much. So what types of other materials, you know, are necessary to have this ecologically friendly solution? You, can, you can't make the entire watch out of steel, right? No. Well, it depends. If it's a bracelet, you could. Uh, I guess the dial. There's a lot of metal, right? <laughs> the, the, the dial is not of metal. The movement is not of metal. The problem then is uh, the straps, for example. So in order to avoid to, to use the leather... But in that respect, there is a lot, a lot of materials coming out and we have made huge research. So we have really quite, uh, quite wide uh, uh, knowledge on, on the straps. But then you have all the rest. You have the packaging, then you have the display to put in the shops. You have the way you treat, uh, let's say, for example, expeditions. So it's a long process. It's not just the, 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 the way you build the product. Last question, and this is about smartwatches. Um, and I know that, that smartwatches are probably a topic you love and hate at the same time. <laughs> um, you know, smartwatches have probably hit the, the, the fashion uh, side of the watch market harder than most other sides of the watch market. Uh, you know, the watches above $10,000 haven't really been affected by smartwatches. But, you know, a $300 watch is really going to be affected by smartwatches. Um, eventually the fashion houses will be able to do what they used to do uh, with traditional watches, also with, with smart watches. And of course, your company will have um, you know, a, par a part in that. Um, but how do you feel that, that smart watches can 
can take advantage of some of the things that, that you learn because an awful lot of them are very, very unsexy. And, you know, it, I think it's so great. I show a, a Versace watch or a Ferragamo watch and, and I'm like, okay, this is an example of a design you want to wear. The smartwatch, as practical it is, oftentimes isn't. Um, you know, and what, when are we going to see this intersection of design as well as sort of smartwatch te technology? You know, give us, give us a little bit of a roadmap. Uh, well, it is relatively difficult to predict. Uh, first of all, smartwatches are a, a different segment, are a new segment, if you want, in, in, in the watch industry, which has uh, several distinctive uh, traits. Uh, first of all, the technology. I mean, the technology on a smartwatch, uh, so you can imagine, I mean, a, a, a pure watch company, which... Uh, is used to have his own movement and uh, or to buy movement and use it for 20, 30, 40 years to have to deal with technology where you need to change everything every six months. Second, the cost of that, which is huge continuous investment, which then require volumes on, on the sales side. Right. Third, the distribution. Distribution of smartwatches is not happening in the same channel where the distribution of watch, traditional watches is done. Because there is technology behind, because there, you need people who know technology, who can explain technology. Already, we have people in the, the shops with struggles to explain the difference between a quartz and automatic movement. You can imagine when they have to explain about about a, a smartwatch. Right, right, right. <laughs> going going down to your question, if I see and when I would see a conjunction between smartwatch and fashion brands, I have to say that some of our competitors they did it. It was not a great success. Uh, the combination can exist only if in a partnership. So if you have a consumer electronic company which is dealing with smartwatches, we'd want to join the project on, on a fashion brand. Like then, Apple and Hermes? Well, Apple and Hermes has been, let me say, I don't want to call it ridiculous because they are two fantastic brands, but they just put the straps on. I mean, you're right. It's it's just it's one way of doing it. It it it's barely yeah. any Hermes. It's ninety nine percent Apple, one percent Hermes. No, no, and you can say it's ninety nine percent Hermes because the bracelet is so well, so nice compared compared to the the original honestly, one. Honestly, the Apple Watch leather is very good. You're not getting much of an upgrade with the Hermes. I'm not, and, and that's no. just saying the Apple Watch one is very good. Well, you, you should you should look at the the, the Missoni straps and uh, case cover for for the Apple hey, Watch. Apple <laughs> proudly says they use Italian leather. Just saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no but for example, <laughs> in Missoni, we have developed uh, uh, straps and the case cover for the Apple Watch, which do strongly personalize. So you see a huge difference. But of course, oh, I Missoni think that's is brilliant. A lot of color, et cetera, et cetera. So you can do that. Remember when Ulysses Nardon came out with their own mobile phone called the Chairman? Yeah. So I remember having having a meal with the CEO at the time. And I said to him, wouldn't it have been a much better idea to just make a really nice case for the iPhone rather than make your own phone? And he just looks at me. He's like, yeah, that probably would have been a much, much better idea. <laughs> they don't. They don't want telling you. I mean, what well, what is important is to find a partnership where a consumer electronic company can be Samsung, can be LG, whatever, develops the technology, and you just take care of the design around. And and that's and that's the thing you do. It's I've always tried to explain because I I done a lot of internal discussions with most of the major companies doing the electronic stuff, and and I try to explain to them, you know, 
yeah, do you do you and let someone else make it actually look nice. Like there are specialists out there that know how to make all the, the stuff around it. So you make the, the, the guts and, and it's working a little bit, but not really enough. I, I find that Apple has done such a better job than a lot of the competition. You know, uh, Google with, with, with Android Wear, um, you know, other than LVMH, I can't think of any important products that, that proudly have the Wear OS operating system. And it's, it's, it's an open platform, yet it so has not been able to galvanize the right type of companies. I don't know, but uh, if you, again, go back to the history of uh, fashion brands, whether luxury or not luxury, what they do, most of the fashion brands, they buy an existing movement. We buy from Swiss yeah. uh, suppliers, the movement, and we create the case, the bracelet, and the design and all the rest. I mean, the only way is to do the same uh, with smartwatches. And I think, to, and I think that's the right idea. I think that's the I think that's the way to do it because right now, even though your st your strap on your Apple Watch can be different, these products lack the distinctiveness that traditional watches have. And I do yeah. very strongly believe there'll be a big big market for we'll just call them smartwatch skins or armor or whatever you want to call it. Yeah, but uh, do not forget uh, you will still be linked to. Uh, supply of movements. So the, the engine will still be supplied from external parties, uh, which which can always drive drive the sales. Uh, look at what Amazon, for example, is doing. I mean, it takes a, a brand that are specialized on certain products, start selling them, make them very successful, and then only a sudden they introduce an unbranded similar product. <laughs> And oh, they have killed a lot of companies. Huh? Yeah, it's 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 not pretty. Um, finally, Paolo, th and thank you so much for joining us on this very interesting episode. I was, we talked about so many great things. What should people expect next, maybe from your team at the Timex Group Luxury Division? What are you excited about that might be you know uh, reaching the news or reaching stores in the next couple of months? Well, I I think that uh, that uh, uh, definitely uh, we are. Uh, let, let's say building up Versace uh, in a very very strong way. Sales result has been amazing over the past 24 months, and we see the trend uh, continuing to 2022 with a lot of new different products. So that will be certainly a good point. And uh, in 2022, we we look to announce uh, an acquisition of a new important fashion brand. That's fantastic. Um Everyone, this has been my interview with Paolo Marai. He is the CEO of the Timex Group Luxury Division. Thank you so much, and we'll talk to you next time. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Superlative Podcast. Support the show by subscribing and rating it on your preferred podcast platform. For questions, comments, and ideas, please email the show at superlative at blogtowatch.com. For the latest in watch news, reviews, and culture, visit ablogtowatch.com. Thank you for listening to the Believe Podcast Network. Do you believe?